Hey, it's Rob, the Media Narrative, July 17th, 2020. Let me ask you a question. Where did you go to school? If you went to a university or college in the United States, then you might have gone to a so-called land-grant school. I did. The University of Massachusetts, UMass Amherst, out there in Western Mass. In its early days, it was known as the Massachusetts Agricultural College or Mass Aggie. You see, after Lincoln signed into law the Morrill Act of 1862, the federal government redistributed parcels of land to most states in the country, ultimately providing funding to benefit or establish more than 50 colleges and universities. Most states in the country have a public university that it founded with money generated by sales or use of these parcels of land. Land grants have now helped support more than 100 colleges and universities, and it is generally lauded as a 100% positive contribution to higher education, to American civic life, to the betterment of humanity. More recent subsequent land-grant measures helped establish several historically black schools, HBCUs, and tribal colleges. On the surface, that all seems good, but there is a very dark foundational aspect to the Morrill Act that until recently was rarely spoken of. The thing about this land, it wasn't really the federal government's to give away. In the words of historian Bobby Lee, the land was either seized or stolen or otherwise leveraged from indigenous tribes into U.S. hands through violence-backed treaties. In March, High Country News broke the story. The piece was a collaboration and quite an unusual one. The aforementioned historian Bobby Lee worked with investigative journalist Tristan Atone in a deeply reported long read called Land Grab Universities. And they, with others, established a website that provides access to huge amounts of information about this. Just before Independence Day a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Bobby Lee and Tristan Atone about their work. Head over to the website at landgrabu.org while you listen. It'll give you a sense of the depth and detail in this research. As we jump into the conversation, Bobby Lee is talking about how he began investigating this while working toward a PhD at one of the land-grant schools, University of California. This started back in uh, 2015. Um, I was working on my dissertation at, at UC Berkeley, um, and I was trying to figure out the indigenous origins of uh, land patent parcels across the public domain. Land patents are sort of deeds that the federal government gave to pieces of uh, land in the American West. There's sort of 30 public domain states. This is land that was claimed by the United States through these sort of um, grand uh, imperial acquisitions that we think of, like the Louisiana Purchase or the Mexican Cession. Um, and I was under trying to understand how these uh, millions, millions upon millions of parcels to track the jurisdictional history of these of these parcels. So I was mapping this as part of a larger project. Um, and then when I was uh, at, uh, at Harvard on a postdoc, I was giving a presentation on this sort of part of the part of the project and was just fortunate that um, that Tristan was there in the audience because part of the goal with the project was uh, to develop a larger collaborative structure to 
be able to uh, bring it directly to the public in a way that uh, academic research on its own can often sort of be cloistered away at the university. Um, and this material is too, too, I mean, too important um, to sort of let incubate over the course of, you know, years or decades working, working on a book. And I'm surprised uh, how infrequent these types of academic journalistic collaborations are, um, because we found this to be a very uh, effective way um, to, bring, to bring out the material and to um, encourage others uh, to look at the mass of, of data um, that we've collected, because there's more here um, than we could possibly, possibly go through for a, for a story for, for High Country News. Could we talk about a particular school, whether it's, say, UCAL Berkeley, where you attended, or any one of these schools that really just gives us a good idea of what went down from the very beginning, from, from the land that had been formerly occupied uh, and lived on by indigenous peoples, all the way to the amount of money to the school, to what the school did with the money? Is there one really good example we could go through on that? We could take the University of California. So as I mentioned earlier, there are, there are two uh, types of these grants that are important to, to distinguish. There's the states that got land um, that were outside their borders, um, and there's states that got land within their borders. There's sort of the so-called uh, scrip versus land states. So California is a land state. It's in the West. It's in the public domain. And it's allocated 150,000 acres um, through the Morrill Act. It's one of the universities that are founded um, explicitly to take advantage of the Morrill Act. There are some universities, there were some Ivy League universities, some other state schools that had already uh, been around for years or decades that were um, became land-grant schools and were grandfathered into the program, but there were even more schools that were founded explicitly to take uh, advantage of this, of this subsidy. So the University of California is, uh, the state of California is allocated 150,000 acres, and it arranges uh, to, to build a donation for uh, the University of California, which winds up um, organizing sort of a, uh, a a land office that it runs out of the that it runs out of the university. Its annual reports are part of the annual reports of the university, and they're basically mortgaging land. Um, so they're so they're making money off the sales. Um, they're making money off the off the interest. Um, in our uh, analysis, we focused on the principal that was raised through these grants. Um, there's, a, there's a longer history of the, the, this, uh, this money producing income over time, but we really focused on the, on the principle that was raised. Um, and the University of California uh, raised in excess of $700,000 um, in the late in the late 19th century, uh, which is really a, a tremendous sum, especially for a university. I mean, when you, ha when you think about um, these schools at the time, you know, they start out with, you know, scores of students, not, you know, not 20,000 students. They might, they might right. have 50 students, 100 students, mm -hmm. 200, something like that. Um, so being able to raise this type of money is, is very significant. And one of the things that we do on the, the Lend uh, Grab You uh, website um, is adjust these for inflation using, using inflation factors. Um, so this 700,000 is in the order of millions uh million millions today for what is a, a much smaller school it really provides seed money um that helps launch uh schools like the university of california and how much did the state pay indigenous people for that land 
Nothing, nothing at all. California is uh, perhaps um, the most egregious um, example. And it's not only that uh, the University of California is getting land in California. There are 30 other universities um, that are also um, using their coupons to obtain land in California. Um, the story of how this land comes into the possession of the United States is, is a history of genocide, um, as we've seen really emphasized uh, in the last few years. There was just, uh, I think, last year, um, the governor of California uh, made a formal apology for the California genocide in the mid-19th century. Um, and that's where this land is, is coming from. One of the mystifying things about this is that... Um... So many of us grew up not really knowing that much about this. I'm a first-generation American, European parents, um, but I grew up here in the United States. And, you know, I remember the story about Manhattan being sold by indigenous people for a, a bargain price. And somehow this is celebrated as uh, a triumphant moment in the birth of a nation. And it's extraordinary to me reading your story understanding better now just how much the real story has been swept under the rug. And I wonder if you can help me understand how that happened, how this disappeared, how it is that centuries into the history of indigenous people on this land, and we're just now hearing about this. Um, why did that happen? How did it happen? Well, it's a complicated... Uh... <laughs> Story. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think generally, you know, one, there, there are multiple places you could start on this question. Um, you know, when it comes to real estate in the United States, I, I do think that there is an inclination to sweep this history and these facts under the rug um, because it throws into question like real estate across the entire country. Um, it throws into question, um, you know, the legitimacy of states. It throws into question the legitimacy of, of cities, towns, uh, property, etc. Um, you know, I mean, when you actually question the roots, um, I mean, for California, for instance, I mean, 18 unratified treaties uh, that make up the entire state, uh, you know, that if you want to question what would happen, what would, what would the state look like if um, Congress had ratified those or what should happen uh, in retrospect? I mean, those are big, those are huge, huge questions that really throw a lot of stuff uh, out of whack. Um, you know, I mean, I, this has been a conversation, I think, at least on the journalism side, uh, a lot of times, especially in, in the last couple of weeks here, um, you know, as indigenous reporters, we've got other jobs besides being a reporter. And one of them is to actually uh, educate people uh, to the facts that their public schools or even private schools uh, never did or refused to do in the first place. So, you know, you have this extra burden on you to actually have to do the work that somebody should have done before. Mm. Um, but, you know, I mean, generally, when we look at the history of, of uh uh, relations with indigenous people in the United States. Um, you know, what, what we're, I, I think what we're really, really speaking more 
broadly to a lot of times in, in uh, this history is, is something that, that is often akin to Holocaust denial, uh, I'd argue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, uh, I mean, when you look at even international laws that, that uh, define Holocaust denial, uh, you, you see the exact same patterns here in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that is a, a troubling area that, uh, you know, states and citizens uh, need to grapple with at some point. Um, and I think that the data and the reporting that we've done here offers that opportunity to land-grant universities, which should be the places to have those difficult conversations and come up with uh, solutions and ways to deal with that history. Um, the issue that we've seen, though, obviously, is that universities don't seem to want to be responding to it. I just wanted to add to um, that very large question about the sort of the, the disappearing act of uh, the backstory of the Morrill Act in the United States. I mean, a big part of it has to do with the um, production of other narratives that sort of muscle this story out of the scene. And we see this all over the place um, at land-grant universities in particular. Um, It's in the murals uh, that they have up. It's in the the names of the buildings, of the statues um, of Lincoln uh, that they have on campus. There's been a a story um, that has been told about the Morrill Act of uh, the democratization of higher education um, in the United States. So it's told as a story of expanding opportunity, um, expanding uh, technological production, um, expanding uh, prosperity in the United in the United States. So we get this uh, we get this counter picture um, that's uh, that's very sort of forcefully um, out in front and has been for a very long time uh, when it comes when it comes to the Morrill Act. Um, another element of it as well, um, I think, is the, um, the overwhelming complexity of it. Uh, I think lots of, lots of us uh, know that uh, there is this history of land taking, um, of theft, of genocide in the United States. Um, but it's a, another problem altogether uh, to be able to say um, which plots of land were used uh, to provide for which institutions uh, in the uh, through the in the development of the United States. I want to try to understand what the uh, impact then on Indigenous people was, and 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 how you characterize it now. That sort of the state, and this might be another terribly complex question to try to answer. But it, if there's a way to say just what kind of effect this really had on people then and how that set them up for the challenges indigenous people face today. Well, I mean, I, I guess I could start in that is by saying broadly it displaced every indigenous community in California. Um, you know, on, on uh, when you look at so the statistics uh, that you see today about, uh, you know, uh, especially about poverty in indigenous communities um, and the lack of wealth that are in those communities, um, you know, the, that, that setup comes from this land dispossession. I mean, you know, if, uh, if those tribal nations still had the real estate of like San Diego, for instance, or San Francisco, uh, we'd probably be talking about some of the most wealthy communities, um, you know, in the hemisphere uh, because of that land and the wealth that that land produced. Um, but um, essentially, I, I think, you know, the, then the impact was displacement um, and outright genocide. 
Um, and the ongoing effects are um, communities that are rightful um, owners to those regions and territories and even cities um, that uh, essentially have no access to the wealth being generated by those lands anymore. Um, and uh, the best repayment um, in any form that they seem to be receiving are uh, acknowledgments of genocide and land acknowledgments. Beyond that, um, it's essentially just repayment and recognition through words. Um, there's not really anything else that's attached to it. What would you like to see happen? What are the ways towards systemic change? I, I, having read your work, I know that the first step is kind of acknowledgement. Um, and then we've started to see some programs like the one at South Dakota State University. Um, but um, really, we're talking about bigger, more complex change beyond that, too, right? Like systemic change, change about attitudes. The, the way, you know, Tristan, you've written about media stereotypes about indigenous peoples. There's all these aspects of, of what indigenous people face today in trying to reach something like equality. So um, I guess I, 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 I'd love to dig into that a little bit, but the, maybe the way to that is to first ask what have been some of the responses. I mentioned South Dakota State, but um, maybe a little bit more about that, but also what in general has been the response from the colleges, the 52 colleges and universities that are in your report? Uh, well, we, we've got the responses that we received on uh, landgrabu.org. So there are a number of universities that recognize the history um, and have acknowledged it in uh, some form or another, at least in comment to us. Um, in terms of long-term impacts, we continue to see reports being generated using our data. Um, and I think most heartening is we seem to, we, we're starting to see um, a little more rumblings from uh, student senates and organizations uh, at land grants to um, request that universities actually form committees or task forces to examine this uh, much in the same way that um, uh, universities examined their history with slavery in the past. Um, you know, I mean, it's been sort of slow going. One, you know, one particular area uh, has been that we release this at uh, when COVID-19 really sort of uh, made landfall here in the U.S. and there was almost uh, no other story except COVID-19. Um, but the, the fact that the, 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 that the data is continuing to be used in these ways, I think, is, is really exciting to see that, um, you know, this is going to be, it appears to be slow burn um, impact that's coming from um, that research. So, I don't know, that, those are some of the kinds of things that, I, that we're, I think, initially seeing now. I think for uh, indigenous communities, it's not necessarily a request for equality. It's a request um, and a, a request for recognition of the treaties and contracts that establish the United States. Um, again, in, in uh, you know, the the session of Wisconsin, for instance, or entire states, Ohio, uh, you know, Oklahoma, et cetera, you know, those come with agreements with the United States um, and a promise of, uh, for instance, health care. Um, Indian Health Service these days is, is woefully underfunded, and it's not an issue of just underfunding um, that, uh, that is often couched around other uh, initiatives around communities of color. I mean, it's just an outright breaking of the law. Like, 
in <laughs> in return for Minnesota, we're supposed to get health care, and we don't get the health care. That means you've broken the contract. So it's either provide the health care or you can, you know, give most of the Western United States back to those tribes. I, I know mm-hmm. this is kind of rhetorical on some level, but we are talking about legal contracts here. So it's not necessarily uh, equality. It's a recognition of the responsibility for those uh, have there been contracts. lawsuits um, specifically aimed at that sort of thing and providing health care because it's actually been um, contracted for? Well, sure. I mean, there, there are multiple lawsuits about uh, about this in the past. I mean, one of the most glaring and especially today with July 4th coming up this weekend, um, you know, we've got the celebration at Mount Rushmore and the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that that land was stolen by the United States. Um, the United Nations has has asked the United States to return that land and mm. uh, the tribes there have refused any sort of monetary compensation for that land saying that it must be returned. Um, you know, th- these are this is the law. This is what the United States has found. And still we've, you know, got a uh, 4th of July celebration going on out there about, you know, the greatness yeah. of America. Um, so I, I, I think that there is a deep legal history here, um, an ongoing legal history of people bringing that up. Um, the problem is when it comes to sort of framing of that, it's like, well, you know, those treaties are old and we don't have to do that anymore. Um, it's not a it's not a conversation of length of time, how old that document is. Um, you know, it, basically any document that's been made after the Constitution is younger than that Constitution. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, these are these are some of the areas, I think, that, that need a lot more uh, spotlighting. But in terms of, um, you know, next steps, uh, I don't know, Bobby, let's <laughs> take it away. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the time for change can be sort of <laughs> lengthy um, and uncertain. Um, the Black Hills case that Tristan is talking about, that enters the courts in the 1920s, and it reaches the Supreme Court in 1980. Um, hmm. And there was a decision there, but it's still not re- resolved. Uh, this is uh, 40, year, 40 years later. Um, it really makes the, the, the two years we spent on this investigation um, look like, you know, small potatoes, you know. Part of the way that we uh, approach this project, I mean, we spent several years collecting this material um, and putting it together, um, knowing that its, uh, its scope was uh, enormous. Um, and one of the best ways uh, to get it to get it used would be to put it out there um, and empower others to build on to build on the data set. Um, and we've started to see this uh, a little bit. We gave sort of the bird's eye view uh, of the of the problem. We've seen some writing emerge talking about um, the moral acts effects in in Kansas. Um, in Oregon, there's some other there's some other projects um, in the works, um, but yeah, this has been sort of slow slow going to to start. Um, when we put out the piece at the beginning uh, at the beginning of April, COVID was um, surging. I don't even want to say it was at its height because we don't even know where it's uh, where it, where it's going from here. What the project uh, allows uh, allows people to do is to to frame. Um, the acknowledgement of the problem and to have a, a basis to dig deeper, to understand um, the deep structural effects, um, both on indigenous communities um, and on the university beneficiaries um, that the moral that the moral act had. Um, where it goes from there, there's been talk about uh, 
lots of different strategies for what universities can do, everything from uh, incorporating um, this work into teaching um, to uh, land return programs or land buyback programs. Um, but we're still, those are, we've seen some sort of uh, small encouraging um, signs uh, that things are moving in that direction, but uh, it's been slow going to, mm -hmm. to start. If a local journalist, if a journalist in California or Arizona or somewhere where a land parcel was, somebody with a nonprofit or a community journalism outfit wants to do a story about this, what would you advise them as step one, two, and three? Or what's any challenge they might face in really getting the story done? Yeah, I mean, it's an overwhelming amount of data. Um, so I think that's the one thing is just to be like reporters should be prepared to see that this is a massive, massive like database. Um, but um, it, the trick here, I think, is to just sort of focus in on particular land parcels, particular tribal nations or schools. Um, this is sort of how we've got it set up on landgrabu.org uh, for folks to be able to do that kind of research, um, you know, through through those interactive maps and parcels. Um, but, you know, generally it's each one of these parcels is, tells a different story. Um, and the, I think the trick is to make sure that uh, you're interfacing with tribal historic preservation offices um, and tribal governments that will have more knowledge or information about those particular parcels potentially. Um, and of course, um, you know, speaking with universities um, to get reaction uh, two stories. Um, I mean, th this is ultimately an accountability story um, with, you know, uh, almost 80,000 accountability stories attached to it. Um, you know, the, the question is, is where reporters want to take it. Um, and there are tons and tons of angles that can be um, used on this. But we, we also are here to answer questions help out in any way. Um, so our, our emails are open and, and we're pretty easy to find. Um, should reporters want any um, help or have questions or anything like that. That's Tristan Atone and Bobby Lee. The website again is landgrabu.org. I have spent quite a lot of time on that website, a ton of information. It's really helpful if you're a journalist or anyone else just looking to dig into this important and disturbing chapter in American history, I've learned that UMass Amherst benefited from 82 parcels in the Western U.S. that were formerly occupied by indigenous people. UMass didn't respond to their request to comment for the article. I'd like to find out if UMass plans to do anything like what they're doing at South Dakota State University, where last year it provided more than $600,000 from land-grant revenue to its indigenous students. I'll find out and report back. After learning about the land grab you story, I wondered, as many of us work toward change in the U.S. to reckon with and make reparations for slavery of and racism directed toward African Americans, might not this be a good time to do the same in terms of providing justice to the indigenous people that were here long before European colonists? If we're going to truly recover from this toxic civic moment in American life and begin to rebuild what we once were, we need to deal with and compensate for this ugly history. Sending the current American president packing will be a good step, but that'll be just the beginning. 
Now, there has been some surprisingly good news for indigenous people since I spoke to today's guests. Four years after the Dakota Access Pipeline protests near the Standing Rock Reservation ended unsuccessfully, a U.S. District Court judge ruled to shut down that pipeline, though there is an appeal process underway that could reverse that. Even more monumental was last week's Supreme Court ruling that a large mass of land in eastern Oklahoma remain a Native American reservation. There's a lot more to this story, but in essence, conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch and four other judges decided that the U.S. must honor long-ignored land treaties. This decision will reverberate throughout the Oklahoma legal system for a while and provides a fair amount of hope for indigenous people there. I don't know if that decision will have an impact on the land-grant universities. Tristan Ottone said earlier that several lawsuits have stalled. Maybe now would be a good time to try to rev those back up. We'll end the show now with some very contemporary music from an indigenous band. Tristan Ottone recommended a few groups. One of them is called A Tribe Called Red led by Mohawk and Cayuga musicians from Canada. They mix a traditional First Nations vibe with electronica. Cool stuff. This is their most recent release, appropriately titled Land Back. The theme music you heard at the beginning of this show was by Matt Jensen. Please subscribe and sign up for the newsletter at themedianarrative.com. Until next time, I'm Rob. Rob.